Timothy 2 in our survey of the Apostle Paul's life. We've been doing it for three years, walking through Acts and Paul's letters to understand what we're calling the Christian life of Paul. And the shocking uh, conclusion we're gaining from this isn't all that shocking, is it? Paul is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning he didn't get his ideas from him. He got his ideas from the Lord Jesus. And nothing Paul says disagrees with anything the other apostles say. And, and furthermore, the Apostle Paul is not the last word in the New Testament. This is shocking to some people. They say Ephesians is the pinnacle, and that's, that's as good as it gets, and, and that's the final word. Actually, the final word of the New Testament was penned by the Apostle John, the beloved disciple, in 95 or 96 AD on the Isle of Patmos. But in 2 Timothy, we have Paul's last letter, and uh, we're in a passage that is... Paul picking Timothy up and dusting him off and getting him back into the work, sharing Jesus Christ, making disciples of the Ephesian uh, Christians in a church that Paul has planted. And uh, by the time we get to Revelation chapter 2, we hear that the church of Ephesus is doctrinally sound, but they've lost their first love. This is some maybe 10 or 15 years later. But before that, Timothy was thrown back into the breach by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. He had had some sort of disruption in ministry, and he was suffering um, uh, emotional pain, spiritual pain, uh, and felt like he was sidelined in the ministry. And Paul picks him up and says, get back at it. And that's where we are in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul tells Timothy to be an unashamed workman. And we'll start our context today in verse 14. I plan on reviewing with you a little bit of chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, and then I want to drill down today just to give you a roadmap where we're going. Please walk with me. I'm going to do something today that you've probably never experienced before, and you may say, and we never will again, but I want you to sink down with me on one of my favorite verses of Scripture, 2 Timothy 2.15. We're going to juice it. I'm going to dig down as deep as I think you'll stick with me to go into 2 Timothy 2.15. And I want to show you exactly what this well-known and often quoted verse actually means and how the words relate to one another. And I'm going to ask you to, to stick with me through that, not because we need to do this with every verse of Scripture. I mean, I do, but because I want you to see where our theology comes from. And, I, and, and this, this verse was uh, actually quoted to me every time my pastor started a message. He quoted second, or Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, 2nd. Timothy 3.16, and then 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And while those words in the King James Version seem to mean something very obvious to me, I think there's great riches in looking at them in their depth. But to get there, I want to show you the paragraph. So today's message is the care the teacher must take with his words. And I want to show you the context for that wonderful statement in 2 Timothy 2.15. These things of verses 11 through 13 of your position in Christ and responsibility to serve him, these things remind them and solemnly warn them before the Lord not to war over words unto no benefit because this causes the ruin of those who hear. If what I'm reading here sounds something like your New American Standard or your King James, your New King James, your NIV or ESV, the reason is because I am translating from the same manuscript traditions that they are using. I'm using the majority text here, and I'm checking all the text-critical issues, but understand that um, this is my translation. And Paul, I put in red at first here, Paul puts this command to Timothy that this is his responsibility. Now watch the context. Um, 
there is a war over words that is a problem in Ephesus. They have this tendency of wrangling about words and ruining the hearers. Have you ever been in a conversation where you feel like this is not good? This is not for me. In fact, I need to go because I don't want to hear this fight over something that doesn't matter. That's what Paul's talking about. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, an unashamed workman who's cutting straight the word of truth is my translation of 2 Timothy 2.15. And I'll show you why. And I'll show you all my English translations that I, that I I honor and love, and and we'll see how they relate to this translation. In verse 16, though, but the profane or worldly empty chatterings avoid. Your English Bible may say chatter, but it's in the plural, so I put it in plural. You can say chatterings. Worldly or profane, that's the word that grabs our attention here, babalos. This word to be worldly or empty or worldly or profane is often used, often translated in your Bibles as worldly. And it means, it means available to everyone, so not sacred, secular. That's one use of this word. But here what he means is that which is not of God, that which is just the profane. Avoid this. Why? For up to a great measure, they will advance in piety. I'll let the New American Standard paraphrase that out. Um, for it will lead to further ungodliness. <laughs> Up to a great measure, they will advance in piety. That was a lot of work. In verse 17, and their word or their message, their logos will, will like gangrene, have a spread. Or spread like gangrene, because we don't have that idiom of gangrene. But it will spread like gangrene, of whom are Humanaeus and Philetus, who according to the truth have departed, or concerning the truth, they've departed. Now Paul says they're, they've gone, but they're still there. He means concerning the truth, They've departed, and he fronts it. He puts it right here in the front of the sentence. Concerning the truth, Hymenaeus and Philetus have departed concerning the truth, and in that they are saying the resurrection has already happened. We have in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, the clearest statement of the rapture. It is imminent in Paul's day because he says, we who are alive and remain will be raptured or caught up. Harpazo, translated in Latin rapto. That's where we get the word rapture because the Latin Vulgate Bible, the original King James. And so the catching up uh, is, is said to happen. When it happens, Paul said we. He, he could have been alive in that day. It's, that's the doctrine of the imminency of this event, the catching up of the church. And this is our resurrection. It is the moment when the body of Christ is resurrected. The dead in Christ will rise first. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, in a moment, a twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed. This is our new body that will inherit eternity in that context in 1 Corinthians 15. And so this is the resurrection of the body of Christ for its judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. And telling people that it's already happened means that you've missed it. You missed it. You were left behind, as they said in the 90s and early 2000s. You missed it. And that is a horrible thing to tell people. And that's why Paul says in uh, 2 Thessalonians that some people are trying to upset you with this. In 1 Thessalonians, you comfort one another with this truth, this doctrine, that the Lord Jesus has a plan. God the Father has a plan. The Lord Jesus is executing that plan, and he's coming for you. 
The other passage that's most explicit is we recently studied of this event where the church is resurrected. Those that are dead and those that are alive are transformed into the resurrection body. This is uh, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, where he tells them not to be troubled because he's going to prepare a place for them so that where he is, they may be also. He's coming to get them, to, the, to get the disciples. Anyway, in, um, in teaching this, you're upsetting people's souls. You're distracting them from the truth, and it's not true. They've ruined the faith of some, these false teachers. And so nevertheless, now listen to this awesome summary. We love systematic theology. Here's a statement of dogmatic theology. The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. He's going to talk about your position in Christ and your responsibility to live out the word of God, your position in Christ, and then your walk. All right. Look what he says. The Lord knows those who are his. That is so powerful. Are you his? Elsewhere, Paul says, we have come to know him, but rather, more importantly, we have come to be known by him. Maybe you're in First John a little bit sometimes and you, your conscience is telling you that maybe not. You know, you're just not, you don't measure up. But that's not the issue. The issue isn't whether you know if you're God's. The issue here is that the Lord knows those who are his. Relax. Relax in the promise of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you have the son in John, 1 John 5.13, you have the life. And the reason I have assurance of my salvation is not because I feel particularly saved. I hope you understand this. My assurance comes from God's word and the God who has given us that word and his promises. His character is on the line. If I do not have eternal life, if I'm not declared perfectly righteous by God's justifying grace, if I haven't been given, imparted with eternal life, if I don't stand to inherit in a resurrection body and, and inherit eternity with Christ forever, if these things are not true as God has said, then as Paul says, we are above all people to be most pitied because God said it. This is where my assurance, where our assurance is to come from from God's promises, from God's word, from what God has said. Do you believe God? Do you take him at his word? Have you been born again? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior? The Lord knows those who are his is the summary description of you and me. And it's so great. He's not missing any of us. He's a good shepherd. He never miscounts. You ever miscount? Is everybody in the van? If you're not here, say aye. Okay, close the door. Let's drive off. There's three kids still in the nursery. Only me. Anyway, uh, we all have these stories, right? My brother-in-law was once left at a gas station for more than, more than an hour, I think, on a road trip. They had to drive back, go get him. But don't feel bad, Mom and Dad. Uh, Mary and Joseph left Jesus in Jerusalem, as you know from Luke chapter 1. Anyway, um, <laughs> we aren't very good sometimes at counting our sheep. And um, boy, or me and the first sergeant, always working on that, always counting the sheep. And I'm not talking about trying to go to sleep at all. <laughs> but God is perfectly uh, good at it, and he knows those who are his. And this is a statement of your position in Christ. But then the other seal, the other firm foundation, we're just saying how firm a foundation. The other firm foundation is this. He is to abstain from wickedness, everyone who names the name of the Lord. Now, if, you, if you're like me, I'm looking at a New American Standard text here uh, for my English Bible. And it says, in that last portion, it says, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. But I just want to point out what Paul says. He says, he is to abstain. That's the way it begins, the verb first. It's a third person imperative and it's a command. I should put it in red. He is to abstain from adikia, from wickedness, 
Who? Everyone, pause in the singular, every one of us who names the name of the Lord. Now look at the awesome statement in this summary. The Lord knows those who are his. That's his business. And you can rest in him knowing if you're part of his sheepfold. But if you, for your part, name the name of the Lord, you have a responsibility. Notice it doesn't say they will inevitably abstain from wickedness. Corinthians, Galatians, of course, Christians get sidelined and confused and fall into um, sin and disobedience like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Of course, Christians fall into false teaching. That's why Timothy is sidelined because he is bringing the truth and they have rejected him. They have, uh, something has happened in his ministry where he's had to, um, Paul's gotten a bad report that Timothy's not preaching. But those who name the name of the Lord, every one of us is to abstain from wickedness. Did I, did I just say you're saved by abstinence from wickedness? Absolutely not. I said, those of you who are saved have responsibilities. Now, how can I carry out these responsibilities? By God's grace. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Holy means to be set apart. Come on, this is not hard to reason through. God, the third person, is infinite God. He's infinitely capable and powerful to do all that he wants. And that includes bringing forth his fruit of the Spirit in you. And this sounds just like Paul in Galatians 5. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are all these categories of personal sin, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and all these categories that describe the character of Christ. And against these things, there is no law. And so we miss the point if we think Galatians is just about the fact that the old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. It has been, but there's more to the story. You who are alive by the Spirit, who have the life Go on walking by the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. So phase one, the Lord knows who those who are his. Phase two, you who name the name of the Lord, abstain from wickedness. It's a great summary. And when people don't think Paul has the two categories, phase one, phase two, and ultimately phase three of your salvation, when when we say, yeah, the sanctification doesn't work that way, as the Reformed community says, we, we go to places like this and say, it seems pretty obvious. Then we look at the experience of, of every believer. Sometimes I'm walking better than others. At times I have to confess my sins to God because I have disobeyed him and have not abstained from wickedness. And we're not talking about, well, I mean, I don't worship Satan. We're not talking about gross personal sin, right? We're talking about, we're talking about sin, which to perfect, infinite righteousness is always gross. Now it doesn't mean that, that you, you, um, are going to be shocked by the wicked things you do. And then that takes you down. And then you, you know, it's not talking about that. It's talking about the character of God and which that, which is unrighteous. Actually, you could translate this as unrighteous as adikia translated here, wickedness. All right. So this is the context. I want you to notice you be careful what you say, avoid worldly chatterings, avoid the, 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 the false teaching you present yourself to God. That's the context for our, this favorite verse of 2 Timothy 2.15. And so I wanted to show you some of uh, my favorite translations. So the Wycliffe Bible was translated into English um, in between 1382 and 1395 by John Wycliffe. Um, and uh, later his bones were dug up and reburned just because uh, uh, for doing this wickedness of translating the Bible into English vernacular. 
It's Middle English. We read it and it looks like Old English, but it's actually Middle English. Old English is almost just a, a Germanic dialect. And English is a Germanic language. You can say, wait a second, I thought we were a Latin. No, we had Latin influence through French because of 1066. But this Germanic language, this is what it looked like in 1395. For Sothi Bisley. Everybody with me so far? Wycliffe is the father of the King James translation. He's the, 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 we've, we've built on each other's work. Everyone has. For Soth, busily cure. Now that word cure back then means something different than it means today. But he's translating with these three words, the word be diligent or study, uh, spudazzo, or keep. And so, or keep is an alternate possible translation. See, we're always kind of making alternate options based on the language. For to, and this difficult word here is give. Y-V-E, you can see I-V-E there, and this is a yog, so it's U, but it's a G. So give thyself provable, the U is a V, or able workman, workman to God. Uh, see, it doesn't say M-A-N-N. We're in English, not German anymore. Man to God, unshamed. Unshamed, that's actually way better than the way that they, they translate it later because it's only one word in Greek. Or worthy not for to be shamed. Uh-oh, now we're paraphrasing. Or worthy not for to be shamed. Right. Rightly. <laughs> treating the word of truth. Treating, rightly treating. That's how Wycliffe did it. Now, Wycliffe's great, but what Paul wrote was in Greek, and we'll get there. 1611 King James. Why do I put an asterisk? Because the 1611 translation of the Bible authorized by the great and questionably moral King James, the, the 1611 Bible that you have, that, that, that was the, the King James authorized version is not exactly what you're reading when you get a King James Bible. It's been, it's been revised and edited. And I'll just, in one way, I'll tell you half or more of the S's in the King James as originally printed look like F's. And if you get an old King James, I'll show you one sometime. If you get an old facsimile version of the King James, you have to uh, make your brain say, okay, those are S's when you're seeing all these F's. And uh, that's because of printing techniques and stuff back then. But anyway, it's mostly exactly the same. And it says, study to shoe. I don't know why it was shoe, but I may, maybe that's how they pronounced it. Study to shoe thyself, approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And like there, I'm home. I'm in my comfortable, easy chair. That's where I've memorized this verse, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what Timothy, the pastor, needs to do. And this is me. Uh, this is a lot of good Bible therapy for me as a pastor. Darby in 1890 translated this way, very able Greek scholar, whether you like his theology or not. He was a very gifted man with Greek. And he said, strive diligently, a very good rendering of spudazzo, to present thyself approved to God, a workman that has not to be ashamed. He's getting that right out of King James and they got it out of Wycliffe. Cutting in a straight line, the word of truth. That is Darby dealing with this difficult one-time word in the New Testament, ortho tomeo, to cut straight. We don't know what this word means, rightly dividing. We, there's no other comparable text to show us how this word is used. And there's no Paul dictionary. In 1901, you have the ASV. Anybody ever heard of the American Standard Version? I mean, I, 
will generally use this paraphrase of the, of the Bible, the New American Standard, because it's the most word-for-word uh, attempt at a literal rendering. And I understand the issues with the New Testament. I'm a majority text person, and they didn't use the majority text as their underlying text, and that's why um, I'm always doing my own translations in part. But the New American Standard came from the Old American Standard. The American Standard Version was printed in 1901, published in 1901, and it was an interesting story. Uh, if you read the ESV, this is part of the story. The ESV was the Revised Standard Version put out by the British scholars in the late 1800s. Well, actually, there was a team of translators and revisers, Bible scholars in both Greek and Hebrew, who worked together across the pond, British and Americans, worked together through the 1890s to bring about the revised standard version. There were some things in the King James that needed a little bit of revision, uh, these translators thought, because of advances that had been made in archaeology and grammar and some other things. And if if you're a King James-only person, that's really hard to hear. And, um, hey, you know, that's how Augustine was with the Vulgate. That's how people have been with with the Latin Bible back in the old medieval period. And, um, but, but in the, in, in the translation committees, they were back and forth and all of the American scholars suggestions were rejected by the British. And when they published the RSV, they didn't include any of the extensive work that had been done by the American scholars. That's the revised standard version that became later the NRSV that was updated. Well, the RSV sat after the NRSV came out, the Revised Standard Version sat, and a Bible, um, uh, a publishing house bought the rights to it and reissued it in an updated translation called the English Standard Version. But the ESV's origin is the RSV, which was the British scholarly rejection of all the Bible-believing scholarship that went into the American contribution. So after um, a period of legal back and forth, the Americans issued the American Standard Version in 1901. A man I really admire in the word, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, still loves the, the ASV from 1901 as his favorite translation. If you get a new American Standard from 1977, all of the Psalms are still thy and thou. And that's how the ASV reads. But he says in the ASV, give diligence to present thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth. So paraphrasing this, Darby says cutting in a straight line because the word is cut straight. They translate handling aright the word of truth. And I agree with both of them. NIV 1984 blows everyone's mind. The Bible is, you know, it's King James and the conservatives have all basically rejected the NRSV. And then we get an NIV, which is somehow an acceptable translation, maybe because Zondervan, a faithful publishing house, publishes it. The Old Testament scholarship in the NIV is excellent. And I don't like the translation philosophy because it's a paraphrase. It's not meant to be a word-for-word translation, and this is a deviation. And so they call it dynamic equivalence. The truth is that to bring any language into another language, you have to paraphrase at times. But um, I, I prefer the older translation methodologies like the NIV, or NASB and the KJV. But they translate, do your best, budazo, to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. In this instance, the NIV 1984 is not paraphrasing. It is doing a word-for-word translation. The difference is they think that the participle is talking about the same person who does this. And that's how I think it works too. NASB doesn't interpret the participle. Um, 
Uh, it just says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. All right. You now have the verse memorized in multiple different English translations. So let's juice it a little bit. Let's zoom in a little bit, if you'll indulge me. Be diligent is my translation of this second person masculine, uh, second person aorist active imperative to spudazo, to be diligent. My English Bible in 1611 says study. I grew up thinking that this means in a chair, at a desk, with a candle or some other light, with a pen and a paper and a Bible. That's studying. That's what I thought this word meant. It doesn't mean that. It's broader. It means to be diligent, to make every effort, to have it as a mission focus. The reason it's given, and I'm not, you don't know what all these words mean, I understand, but I just want you to understand where I'm coming from, some of the nuance. This type of command, when it's a second, when it's an aorist imperative, it's general command or precept. This is something that you put up on the rules and it's the, the house rules. This is, this is how it is. You need to do this. Be diligent, a general command. And the word spudazo, S-P-O-U-D-A-Z-O, is to hurry. It can be, mean to make haste. Get over here. Arriba, arriba. Okay, hurry up. It can mean take special pains, which doesn't mean the same thing as make haste, but it's saying there's something that's a priority. To conscientiously discharge an obligation. These are the glosses that will be put out in the best lexicons for what this word means, to spudazo. There's a related noun, spude, or adjective, spude, to be diligent. And the way I would illustrate this is it's your mission focus. This word means that you now have a mission. You're sitting through, through, you know, through your day. It's time for lunch. Maybe you bust out a peanut butter and jelly. I'm a strawberry jelly person. You get and crunchy. So, so you get your peanut butter jelly going. And all of a sudden, you get a mission. Somebody with authority comes out and says, this is the mission. All of a sudden, it wasn't so important that I finished my sandwich. It wasn't so important that the rest of my day play. I'm going to check my emails. I've got a couple of letters I need to write. No, I've got a mission. And it takes priority. That's a helpful way, I think, that spudazo can be illustrated, that it takes priority. And then you finish the verbal idea in spudazo with an infinitive to present from the aorist active infinitive of paristemi, P-A-R-I-S-T-E-M-I, long E, paristemi. And this word is two pieces, para and histemi, to stand beside or stand before. And it, it comes to mean, because of that etymology, it comes to mean to set something before someone, to render. Okay, So you be diligent to render is the verbal package that Paul is issuing to Timothy in this, in this presentation. And most of the rest of the sentence is going to be playing off of this word that I've translated to present. To shew thyself. S-H-E-W in the King James. Study to show thyself. To show can mean not really doing it, just showing. In English, you've got to be careful with the word show. It could mean to demonstrate, but this is to render before someone. And who you're rendering to is really the whole thing. The aorist infinitive is called a complementary infinitive. If you're a nerd and you want to know, I am. It completes the thought of this main verb. Be diligent. That doesn't give me anything. Be diligent to present yourself to God. That. Okay, this is my mission. So put down the sandwich and I'm going to be diligent to present myself to God. So here's some things that we take away so far. Your primary goal is the presentation. Whatever this presenting yourself is so far, it's the, it's the diligence. It's the primary thing. The mission focus inherent in Spudazzo suggests you have no higher priority. I believe that's what you have to take away from Paul saying, be diligent, make every effort, make haste. You have no higher priority. 
My presentation, whatever it is, is my priority. Whatever this presentation, you know what it is to God. What that does is it puts everything else on the back burner. It reduces everything else to a lower priority. So my presenting myself to you, not the priority. You're presenting yourself to me, not the priority. You see it? It's to God. It's your relationship with God. All right, let's keep working on it. Present, be diligent to present. And then interestingly, he puts a sandwich. You've got this verb, spudazo, this verb, paristemi. This now in an adjective cluster, go in between those two verbal pieces because it's emphatic because of what Paul is going to emphasize here, yourself. This is the word yourself. It is your favorite word. There's the magazine self magazine. We like that word, myself, self. Finally, something relevant in the message, yourself. See, when you read it, you don't, that doesn't jump out at you, but in the Greek, it does present yourself. It's an accusative masculine singular. What does that mean? It means it's the direct object of the verb. That's all it means. It's the direct object of the verbal notion in the infinitive. So what you're presenting is yourself. And you're like, wait a second. In English, you have to put the verb first and then the object second. And you do. But in Greek, you don't. And that's because they have case endings. So we know this is the object of to present. Verbal notion is present. And it is seautos. S-E-A-U-T-O-S is the, is the actual pronoun yourself. It's a reflexive pronoun that would mean yourself. Second person. Well, that's really profound, Pastor Dave. Your primary goal is the presentation. The mission focus means you have no higher priority than this presentation. My presentation is my priority. You with me so far? When you are, what you're presenting is yourself. Did that jump out at you when you're reading this? What you are presenting to God is you. I'm presenting me to God. So this answers the question, what will I do with me? What is my relationship to me? I am meant by God to be something I'm presenting to him and I'm not living for myself. What do you have, beloved, that is more important than yourself? I mean, that is really yours under your control. You can say, well, I've got the Bible. I mean, that's yours under your control. I have a relationship with God. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. But I mean, physically, what can you say you have in this life? List your assets. Remember the Princess Bride? List our assets. <laughs> What are your assets that you have that you could say, these are the things that I have that are most valuable? And in terms of your personal resources that you can use, yourself is, the, is everything. This is the command Paul has for Timothy for what to do with himself, and it's his mission focus. Dokimas. Be diligent to present yourself approved. And this is where it gets difficult to reason through, and I appreciate your diligent attention. We're almost halfway through. Be diligent to present yourself approved is another accusative word, but it's an adjective. And it, by being a masculine singular accusative, is pointing right back at seautos, at yourself. What you are describing yourself is as approved, and it modifies that previous noun, yourself. Approved modifies yourself. It doesn't modify to God. It's very important. Approved is the description of you. Dokimos, D-O-K-I-M-O-S, means to be tested in order to determine genuineness. I had an ounce of gold. I put it through a fire test, through a crucible, and there was 97% of an ounce left. 0.97 ounces remained because there was 0.03 ounces of impurity that burned off in the crucible process. 
After that testing process was complete, I know that I have 97% or 0.97 ounces of pure gold. I know that that's what I have and it's genuine gold. Is that real gold? Yeah. Remember in the old cowboy movie, someone hand someone a gold coin. What would the, what would the, the cowboy guy do? He'd bite it and see if it was gold. What, what, huh? He's seeing if it's soft, like gold would be soft. What's the gold content in this coin? And so that's a test that determines genuineness. And that is inherent in this word dokima, something that has been determined to be genuine. You could translate it to present yourself genuine. But it's known to be genuine because of tested, approved. So what you're presenting is yourself. The command deals with what you do with you. And the condition in which you must be diligent to present yourself is approved, genuine, tested, and found not lacking, approved. It's important to note that the text doesn't say it, but it is definitely what it means. God is the approver. And it's his testing process. Approved to God is not what it means. Present yourself to God approved. But God is the approver and it's his standard that you're going for. In James chapter one, we have some very helpful instruction for very trying times about suffering and about testing and about what suffering is for. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, that's mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks uh, wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously, without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man unstable in all his ways this is suffering and wisdom in a package of relationship with God and that's what he means by approved I think presenting yourself to God approved as the description of yourself is is what you're looking for in terms of how you stand before God. I want to show myself to God or present myself to God approved. And so the, the takeaway from this is that you're in process. Are you approved right now? Uh, we're all under testing of various uh, intensity at various times. God is always calling out through the test, our faith. Remember every test is a test of faith. Are you trusting him through the trial? That's the test. And as you present yourself to God, you want to be presenting yourself to God approved and it's approved by him. The status we want before God is approved. Uh, I think Paul gives us something about this in second Corinthians chapter five, where he says it is our ambition, whether in the body or out of the body, whether we're uh, our body's dead and our spirits with God or our body's alive. and We're separated from God physically to be pleasing to God. Why? Because we all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. The status we want before God is approved. And here's an interesting test. Paul says, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Are you approved in the moment? Well, it has to do with righteousness, it has to do with practical righteousness. We just read that uh, God knows those who are his. And also all those who name the name of the Lord are to abstain from uh, unrighteousness or wickedness. Beloved, if you're dirty, you need to get clean. And the Bible tells us how to get clean from personal sin. Personal sin is defilement. 
And God's cleansing is by God's grace according to his character. And that's 1 John 1, 9, the most explicit place it's stated. If we confess our sins, if we, John, includes himself, we believers, confess our sins, he is faithful, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I guarantee you that if you're walking in darkness, as 1 John 1 says, and not in the light with God, if you're walking out of fellowship with God, you're not approved. But wait a second, I'm in Christ. My sins are forgiven. I'm set apart to God forever. I'm approved in Christ and the beloved. Yeah, but we're talking about what Timothy, the believer, is supposed to do. He's being diligent to do this. You don't have to be diligent to be in Christ in position. You have to be diligent to walk before God in fellowship. And if you're guilty of personal sin, beloved, confess it. If you continue to do it, stop confessing and stop doing it and then confess it. It makes no sense to, um, to play with defilement while you're trying to wash it off of you. But I'm going to get some more defilement. But I'm washing, but I'm getting some more defilement. That's ridiculous. Stop it. Whatever it is, stop it. That's my therapy for the day. All right. We move from be diligent to present yourself approved. And then we have the dative to God. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. And this is a masculine dative singular article plus noun. It's an articular noun. Um, that is, if we were to put it into English, like words, we say the God. But usually when we're referring to God with the article, it's, not, um, it's, a, it's identifying God as the Father and specifying the, the God we serve. It's a dative of interest, we call it, or a reference indicating the party to whom the verbal notion is addressed. So you're presenting not to me. You're not presenting yourself to your friends. You're not presenting yourself to the, um, the, the friends on Facebook. You're not presenting yourself to Instagram so that people will see that your life is great and you smile and your hair is always done just so. You're presenting yourself to God. So good, so helpful, so relevant in the time in which we live. To God. That os is the stock word for God. T-H-E-O-S. Now, what you're presenting is yourself. And so this deals with what you do with you. And the condition that you're looking for in the presentation is that you're approved with the person to whom you are presenting yourself as God. That's grammatically dogmatic. It has to be. That the word approved is not pointing to God. The word approved is pointing to you. And you're presenting yourself to God. Therefore, God is both the approver, because of the word approved, and the one to whom you present yourself approved. That's right. It's all God's grace from beginning to end. He's both the approver and the one to whom you present yourself approved. And you said, if you're still listening, I have no idea what that means. Let me show you why I have to do it this way. If you diagram it the way we teach diagramming in seminary, uh, we put the, the main clause, the main verb is after this little line that crosses the bar, and then the infinitive gets two of them. So you have your main verb and your infinitive. Isn't that clever? Be diligent to present. And the object of the verb doesn't cross the line. The object marker is this, this vertical bar that doesn't cross, and it's yourself. That's your accusative. And we had an adjective that was also a masculine accusative describing yourself, and so it is approved or genuine. And then you have an indirect object in the dative and you diagram an indirect object this way with the forwards, a little slash. And this, therefore, is pointing to God is pointing to present. It's the indirect object of the verb. Why am I saying that? Because approved doesn't point to God in the grammar. Approved points to you. To God is the one to whom you're presenting yourself. I didn't understand that when I was coming up. I heard it a million times. Show thyself approved unto God a workman that needs not to be ashamed. But it's show thyself to God approved. Show thyself approved. 
You're approved to God. The, the condition in which you're presenting yourself to God is approved. Be diligent to do that. Show up in fellowship. Show up on mission. That's the idea. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A workman. Here we go. Grace and works. We just talked about it to the little kids, Martin Luther, and how it's by grace through faith. Now you're going to take it back and tell us we have to be about works. Why, why, do you keep, why do you keep talking about Christian works? Because I keep reading the Bible. And here we have a workman, ergate, a workman. It's an accusative masculine singular noun. We keep hearing this accusative. All these nouns and adjectives are accusatives because they're all pointing back to yourself. And what is this word doing in the sentence? We call it an appositive or appositional. It means there's an equal sign. It further specifies yourself. You are approved as described as approved. You are a workman. Approved, comma, a workman, comma, is how we would think of it. To present yourself to God approved, a workman. That's why they've got to throw us like an as a, as, a, as a workman. You are a workman. And that's the basis for, for saying approved in, in part. Ergate, I, I transliterate the hey, because, the, the ada, because that's how you write a, an ada in, um, in caps in Greek. But it's E-R-G-A-T-E, long E is the ada. Ergate. And it, it's related to the word ergon for work or, or lots of other words. Um, I can't remember the verbal form, but to do work. Um, it's where you get um, ergs as a measure of, of work or energy. And it just it's your basic word for work. Now, pastor, you are always preaching uh, salvation by grace through faith and, then, and not of yourselves as a gift of God, not of works, not of works, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I'm here to tell you, beloved, you're not here to get saved. If you're not a believer, we want you to trust in Christ as your Savior. Please consider Jesus Christ and only trust in him as your Savior. There's nothing you could do yourself about your sin. Jesus paid for your sin. But I'm talking generally to Christians that need to do what Paul is describing for Timothy. And in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast is followed by, I hope you have it memorized, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. You don't do the work to be saved. He made you new. You're his workmanship. You're his work. Created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of or unto good works that God prepared beforehand that you would walk in. It's like a cooking show. You show up to the cooking show and God has already set up all the ingredients. Ever see somebody cook on TV? I would, I'd like to cook like that. Oh, look, eggs. Everything's measured perfectly. I stole that from Brian Regan. But anyway, I want to cook. At like they, It's all set up, and I just go, just do what the, what the recipe says, and, and here it comes. It, it worked out perfectly. That, that's a description of what we have. God has set you up for the works he wants you to do. But it's, you're saved unto good works. And that, that's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, there's no work for you. If you know Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God lives in you so that you can do God's works by grace through faith. A workman. So what you're presenting is yourself. The command deals with what you do with you. The condition that you want to present yourself is approved to God by God. The person to whom you're presenting yourself is God and the standard by which you can assure that you're approved by God is that you're a workman, a worker. There's no place in 2 Timothy 2.15 for the approved not worker. 
That word ergate could mean laborer. It could mean day laborer. It could just mean the worker. Hey, uh, some guys are coming over to help us with the roof tomorrow. Okay, the, the, I promise you the contractor is bringing workers. That's what this means. It just means those that do the work. A workman unashamed. The next description is this one word that keeps getting translated with many words who does not need to be ashamed. And it's a, another one worder, one time in the New Testament. Masculine accusative singular adjective. By the way, visitors, I never tell the grammar ever, except I might just say what's well, heiress because it's saying something. I never do this, but I want to do it this time just for this one verse. I love uh, geeking out on the grammar. All right. It's a masculine accusative singular adjective. I keep saying accusative. It just means the direct object. It means that everything is pointing back to yourself because that's the first direct object. You're unashamed. You're a workman unashamed. All right. In this case, it's pointing, this one is pointing back at the workman. What, what is a, a shameful workman? Somebody that doesn't do his work. Did you do your job? Kind of. Did you get done what I asked you to do? The work that I had for you to do? Well, no. Why not? Well, I'm crunchy peanut butter. I, I had, I had stuff. There was passive entertainment to be had. All right, a workman unashamed. This is the word. <laughs> Anepiskuntas. I knew I was going to mess it up. I said, don't mess this one up, but I knew I was going to. Anepiskuntas. Uh, that's a lot of, lot of, thankfully, it's only one time in the New Testament. There are two prepositions in it. Uh, uh, on and then epi and then Iskuntos is your root of the word, and it means to be ashamed. And so it's not ashamed. The alpha privative before the word not ashamed. Because of all the pieces in it, and because it only happens once, the, the, the translators feel like they've got to put a little extra, so they say one who doesn't need to be ashamed. But there are Greek words for all of those English words. <laughs> so I've translated unashamed. It's an adjective describing the workman. So what you're presenting is yourself, Condition in which you must be diligent to present yourself is approved by God. The person to whom you're presenting yourself is God himself. The standard by which you can assure that you're approved by God is that you're a workman. And the kind of workman God wants you to be is unashamed. And you already all knew that. But I'm just, I'm just describing all the little, the little pieces. My sister once did a science project. And it was, this is a total nerd thing. Have you ever heard of owl pellets? If you're in biology or science or anything, you know what owl pellets are. If you have kids at home, like homeschoolers, um, th thank you for not raising your hands. Anyway, uh, owl pellets are not kosher. An owl pellet is a fur ball that an owl coughs up after it eats a mouse whole or two. Uh, owl has an, a, a full night, has a feast, and then the next day or two, uh, it gets all that it needs to from the digestion process, and then it spits out this very interesting pellet. And inside that pellet is the skeleton, the complete skeleton of whatever it ate. And nerds will... Uh, <laughs> They will dissect owl pellets and reconstruct mouse skeletons. That is a fun thing. It's all about homeschool people. All right. So, um, so we're putting together all the little pieces because of all the intricacy that's involved. And you learn so much by doing it. And if you've ever really understood why dissection in biology, you understand something of why I am juicing this the way I am. All right. All right. We're almost done. Be diligent to present yourself to God approved, a workman, unashamed, who rightly divides or correctly handles. The present active participle, 
Got to have a participle. It's no, it's no fun. No party unless there's a participle. Participles are verbal adjectives, and they can do the things that adjectives do, and they can do the things that adverbs do, and you have to decide what is it pointing to. Well, very helpfully, it's a masculine accusative participle. It's pointing at you yourself. It is pointing back, just like all these others, as an adjectival participle to yourself, who rightly handles. So the way you know that you are a, an unashamed workman is that, in this case, for Timothy, you pastor, you are rightly handling or cutting straight the word of truth. And it's an adjectival participle, and that's a controversial statement for grammar nerds describing yourself, an unashamed workman. It could be a, an adverbial participle pointing all the way back to this uh, infinitive. It could be saying present by means of cutting straight the word of truth. And the difference in meaning between those two interpretations is nil. It's the same outcome. Orthotomeo, another hopox. Hopox means it only happens once in the New Testament. This word, apaiskuntos, one time in the New Testament, it's right here. Orthotomeo, one time in the New Testament, it's here. Did you know that there are so many little riches and treasures and interesting details about this one verse in 2 Timothy 2.15? Orthotomeo, it's the one that we've been translating rightly divide, um, to cut straight or rightly handle. And the way we know it means to cut straight is ortho means straight or right, and tomeo means to cut. And so the only time we've ever seen those two words jammed together like this is here. And so we think it means to cut straight. <laughs> That's the way you do this. And so we don't know. We don't know what Paul's thinking, but we think it might be that he's a tent maker and he cuts fabric straight. Fabric is expensive. Textiles have always been difficult. Um, and, and so when you're making tents, you have to put them in the right si sizes, the right fabrics have to be cut into the right shape and size and sewn together. And so maybe he's thinking that this vital, this expensive fabric has to be dealt, dealt with just perfectly. You have to cut a straight line. Maybe he just came from making a tent, probably not at this point, at this point in his life, but um, maybe that's where he gets it as a tent maker, but to cut straight, um, I, that's my tendency. I think that's probably what he's thinking. And so to rightly handle, to rightly divide. Um, I have a couple of books in my Logos library I really love. Uh, one's by Clarence Larkin, uh, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. Another by uh, C.I. Schofield with the same title or something like right, Rightly Divided. Um, and both are trying to say, as I mentioned last week, that this is or the week before, that this means that you divide uh, the Bible into its necessary divisions. But I don't think Paul has an intent about dividing the scriptures at all. I think he means we're handling it properly. So I disagree with that interpretation of cutting the scriptures into their pieces. But then you have the word of truth. Ton logon teis aletheis. The word of truth is an articular accusative article plus an accusative noun, which is the object of the verb in orthotomeo. It's the direct object of the verbal idea. So what he's supposed to cut straight is the word of truth. So it can't be the path of your life using God's word. It's, he's cutting the word, whatever or cut straight means. And so that's why I say it means to rightly handle. And um, it is logos, L-O-G-O-S, and aletheia, your two stock words, word and truth. Aletheia is an adjective, and it's, I'm sorry, it's a genitive, and it's what we call a, um, an attributed genitive describing the word. It's the truthful word. It's the word of truth, that, that what God's word is is true. It's a way of describing it. So... 
What you're presenting is yourself. The person to whom you're presenting yourself is God. The condition is approved by God. The standard is that you're a workman. The kind of workman is unashamed. And the way you can be, a sh- uh, you can be an unashamed workman is if you correctly handle the word of truth. This seems to be Paul's call on Timothy's life. And it is a life verse for me. Now, closing down, you're not Timothy and neither am I. None of us is an apostolic emissary. I'm a pastor. Paul, Paul is sending Timothy in a pastoral work. So this has a direct application of presenting the word of God. Some would say you didn't just do that for these people. They don't know all this grammar. So, and I think the way we preface it, it's okay. How do you apply this to your life? Let me ask you a question. Do you have a relationship to the Bible? Does God want you to handle it correctly in as much as you're responsible, in much as, as much as the Bible touches your life? I'd say one way to handle the word of God, if I'm not a pastor, is that I don't neglect it. As I told the little children, in Psalm 1, we meditate on the scriptures day and night if we're wise. And if we're foolish or wicked, we don't. I think neglecting God's word is one application for you and me if we want to rightly handle the word of truth. Final thing. I emphasized it throughout the message. I tried to revisit the deliverances of the grammar as we went. And I pray that this was a blessing to you in some way. Your first love is God. The relationship that has to take priority is your relationship to God. And Timothy might have been on the outs with some of the people in Ephesus. And there might have been some people that really hated him or would never come back because Timothy was there or whatever. And Timothy felt there was a problem with people. I promise you it was not God putting Timothy out of the work. Timothy was was, was hitting some rough sledding and it involved people. I think this is why Paul says you need to present yourself to God. We are accountable to one another. The Bible's full of this. We stir each other up to love and good works in our assembling. If you don't come, we should be able to say, hey, we want you to be here. And if, if I don't come, you should be able to say, hey, uh, you're the pastor. You should be back here, <laughs> right? There should be accountability with one another because of what the scriptures teach. That's loving one another. And uh, it's not an illicit getting into people's business to be in people's lives. It's so important to get this. I teach this all the time. Just look up in your concordance the word one another and let it, ro- let it roll through your soul, all the New Testament, on one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's get over this idiotic, uh, misplaced priority on privacy to the exclusion of biblical obedience. But all that said about the importance of personal relationships, your first love is God. We, we do find ourselves accountable to one another. And I present what I say before you for your approval, and I'm accountable to you. But understand, I'm presenting myself to God, and you need to be too. It's about your relationship with God. Fellowship with believers is because of prior fellowship with God the Father in 1 John 1. It's the most important thing in your life. And if today was just a reminder that, hey, that's the most important thing in my life, then we were successful with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We close this morning with words of life. I've said it four or five times, but I'll say it again. There is no hope for you except the Lord Jesus Christ. That applies to everyone in the room, everyone in the hearing of my voice. There is no hope. The Apostle Peter tells Christians that we fix our hope entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the, the, the riches that are to be brought in Christ in our future, in our destiny. Our entire hope is in Christ. That's for everyone. But if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then you have no hope. You have no relationship with God and you have an expectation of judgment that we don't want you to have to suffer. Our love for you, our compassion for you from the Lord Jesus himself is this. For God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you. That's right. All of us are sinners and Jesus died for all of us. Will you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Will you consider him who died for your sins and rose from the dead to offer you eternal life and receive it from him? The way you do it is simply by believing in him. I trust in Jesus as my savior. I receive the gift of eternal life that he alone offers and I do it by faith. You can even pray, but it isn't salvation through a prayer, but you can tell God, Father, I'm trusting in your son as my savior, that he died for my sins and rose from the dead. I'm trusting in him as the one alone who can deliver me from my sin and give me everlasting life. Father, we thank you for the life we enjoy. We thank you for the challenges you put in our path. We thank you for the tests that bring forth endurance and proven character. And Father, we ask for you to continue to mature us in your son so that we're useful to you. We all want to be approved and therefore present ourselves approved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.